0: This is The Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Hosted by Dr. Jana, a sex researcher and professor of human sexuality at NYU, and Joe Partavila, the guy who's a fan of sex. Here's Dr. Jana and Joe. Here we go. Episode six. Oh, hello. How are you, Dr. Jana?
1: I'm doing well. I actually have a announcement to make.
0: I can't marry you. I'm already taken. I'm sorry. Was that? Was oh no. It, was that the announcement? I was <laughs> oh no. On I the know, show. I know how much you love marriage, but no. I'm sorry. <laughs> what is your What is your announcement?
1: I have a live event coming up Ooh. for the people who are in New York City to show up in person if they would like to. It's in Brooklyn on November 16th at 8 p.m. It's a sex sign social where we talk about one topic and then the, what we know about that one topic and oh. the topic this. Time okay. is bi-curiosity Ooh. slash mostly heterosexuality. So it's wow. about those people who are not completely, completely straight, but they're not necessarily super bi to think of themselves as bi or be seen by others as bi. Interesting. So it's uh, November 16th in Brooklyn, and you can find information about the event on Facebook. It's called Sex Science Social Bi-Curiosity or on Eventbrite.
0: And it's so funny that you mentioned that because today on the show, we're going to kind of mm-hmm. delve into bi-curiosity. A
1: little bit, yeah. What do we got? Well, today we have a man with a PhD in threesomes, a sociologist from the UK who tells us how straight men are increasingly having threesomes, a menage a trois, with other men as a way to kind of strengthen their bromances.
0: And we have some shocking news. More news. <laughs> Dr. Jana agrees with the Trump administration.
2: Well,
1: well,
0: that's coming up. Okay, on, on, one thing, on, on one thing, on one thing. The yeah. science yeah. of sex. Foreplay. <laughs> All right, so... We gotta get to some heavy stuff, over the last few weeks several Hollywood and political figures have been accused of sexual harassment and misconduct, I mean the list is just going on and on. Actors Dustin Hoffman, Jeremy Piven, director Brett Ratner, political talking head Mark Halpern, have all been accused of such things. The
1: NPR editor. The NPR
0: guy's gone. He lost his job. There's a a lot of people that are coming out years and years later. The Dustin Hoffman case 20 years after the fact. What's this all about, Dr. Jana?
1: Well, it seems like it's that breaking point that we've reached when it comes to sexual assault and sexual harassment where people are really feeling comfortable coming forward and talking about this as opposed to keeping it secret and also greater willingness on the part of the higher-ups, the people responsible for Mm. some of these people, to do something about this because very often some of these stories are stories where these things were shared with management in some way, shape, or form. They just kind of sweeped it under the rug. But when we talk about these things, and there's been a lot of talk about these with the Me Too hashtag and basically a social project in some way. I do want to point out that very often we tend to lump a lot of different kinds of experiences together under the same umbrella. And it's not always, I mean, I think there are some benefits to doing that, to bringing attention to how widespread some of these issues are. But at the same time, it also has its drawbacks because these are not the same thing. So sexual assault, there are lots of different types of sexual assault. It's not the same thing if somebody was groped versus somebody was forced or held a weapon to yeah. Their head, or something like that. So, th- those are very different kinds of experiences that research has shown have different types of effects on yeah. their uh, victims. And then, sexual harassment is a whole other yeah. kind of animal that very often gets lumped in with sexual assault, but that right. is yet very different. So, we should be maybe a little careful not to dilute the experiences of those people who have experienced something that's a lot more serious or a lot more traumatic than other things, like not to invalidate the experience of the people who have been affected by by these things, but it's not the same. And we do have plenty of research to suggest that it's not the same. Being catcalled is not the same as being forcefully raped. right? And I don't think we should be lumping all of that together and I think also I'm a little worried about the effects that this has on on people's lives mm. and I wonder where the line should be drawn as to when somebody's career should be completely ruined and them not be allowed to come back what are some of the transgressions that maybe we give people a chance to come back from yeah I don't
0: think we're gonna from. know that I don't like especially now is a perfect example like what's gonna happen with all these guys the NPR guy mm. the Mark Halperin's of the world what's gonna happen to them going forward do Do they never work again?
1: I don't know. And so this is where that there's a concept called restorative justice comes into the conversation of who are the perpetrators who we don't give a chance to recover or rehabilitate right. and what are perpetrators that we do allow that and what is the process? Yeah, Obviously just saying, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it that way is not enough. But right. so, so what is and kind of developing. I think the key is going to be to develop some strategies for how to go about dealing with this in a way that is not just firing everybody for, ever.
0: And now one person that was caught up in this, I didn't mention him yet, but Kevin Spacey, he's getting slammed on all sides for the way he decided to reveal that he's gay. Now, (laughs) you might have heard the story, but last week, Rent star Anthony Rapp accused Spacey of making a sexual pass at him when Rapp was just 14 years old. Now, this is a huge story. It's affected House of Cards. They've stopped filming. That show may never air again on Netflix. Spacey came out with a statement that night and pretty much called it drunken behavior, but he wrapped up by saying, this story has encouraged me to address other things about my life. I've loved and had romantic encounters with men throughout my life, and I choose now to live as a gay man. <laughs> now that's t- that. Has, that <laughs> statement is so loaded. First, he's addressing the harassment and the, the attack. The have
1: nothing to do with it's, one another, right? But. And
0: so the LGBT community went after him hard on this, as you can imagine. Mm. But the, there's so much to this story, like the fact that Kevin Spacey. He did a great job of hiding the fact that he comes across as a pedophile. Anthony Rapp, 14 years old. Kevin Spacey at the time was 26. That's another thing that was not addressed in it. So that was almost like the perfect apology because it kind of like hushes that whole thing away. Oh, okay, oh by the way, okay, forget okay. that. Hold
1: on, hold on, hold on. He is not a pedophile for making a pass at a 14-year-old. So we throw around this word left and right for okay. anybody and everybody who's been either attracted to or had some sort of sexual behavior with someone who's 18 or younger. That's not what pedophilia is. Pedophilia is something very specific. Okay. It is attraction to prepubescent children, to children who have not yet gone through puberty and are not showing the signs of a physically sexually mature person. A 14-year-old boy is, in 90-plus percent of the cases, already post-puberty
0: Okay, adult.
1: I mean, not a, not a full adult, but their bodies are sexually mature. Now, you can decide... In a society that a 14-year-old is too emotionally immature to have sex, that that's illegal, that that's inappropriate, that that's unethical, that it might be harmful to that 14-year-old if they're having sex or being uh, hit on by a 26-year-old, but that is not pedophilia.
0: It's having sex with someone who's prepubescent isn't necessarily pedophilia yes. if there's no attraction. Exactly. Wow. Yes, I did not know that. Yeah.
1: And pedophilia, you can totally have pedophilia without having ever touched a child.
0: Like child porn and stuff or like even, that, or even yes, yeah.
1: child porn. Like you just have that attraction as an attraction. Now, what we're talking about here, if we're talking about this uh, as a, as an attraction, like I don't know if Kevin Spacey has a thing for fourteen year olds, right. or it just happened that he had a thing for this particular fourteen year old in that particular moment. Okay, but if he has a pretty consistent attraction to these young adolescents, but post puberty, right? Then uh, that's called ephibophilia. It whole, has it's a whole, whole whoa, other whoa, whoa, name whoa, what, for it. What is is this now? ehebophilia or ephibophilia. And what does that stand for? That is attraction to early post-pubescent children or, or um, teenagers. So, they're not children. They're so, adolescents. So
0: they're essentially underage, but they've already gone through puberty.
1: Yes, they're sort of okay. underage, but they have gone through puberty. And there is a big distinction. I do want to make this clear that we as a society, again, we can decide that a certain age is the age of consent. Right. But there is a high level of arbitrariness about that. 14, there are lots of countries like in Europe and other parts of the world where 14 is the age of consent. So a 26-year-old having sex with a 14-year-old is perfectly, completely, absolutely legal. Okay. And these people are sexually mature physically, even if we tend to think of them as psychologically immature.
0: And that's because our society established that Yes, especially exactly. or here in the states, probably you know sixteen to eighteen, I guess, depending yes. on what state you're, right, you're from. exactly. But the problem, but that is
1: that is very arbitrary, yeah. right? So you have sixteen-year-old. I mean, do we really believe that a sixteen-year-old in, say, Nevada or in New Mexico? I think it's sixteen in yeah. New Mexico that some, somehow a sixteen-year-old in New Mexico is much more psychologically mature than a sixteen-year-old in California, because that's exactly what we're saying here. If you have a sixteen-year-old having sex with Let's say a 25-year-old in New Mexico. They're perfectly legal. Nobody's doing anything wrong. You move those two people to Cali, and all of a sudden, the 25-year-old goes to jail for statutory rape.
0: All right. So Kevin Spacey is not a pedophile, but he is a sick bastard. We can agree on that.
1: (laughs) He certainly engaged in this at least one inappropriate behavior, yes. All right, wait, our guest is
0: standing by, Dr. John, but I got to ask you, I read this on the Daily Mail, and the headline is something I think is right up your alley, and now (laughs) don't take this the wrong way, but the headline read, forget missionary, it's time to master pegging, exclamation point, pegging in all caps, Tracy Cox reveals the surprising sex moves that are all the rage in modern bedrooms. Um,
1: what's pegging? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have no idea. I mean, At I'm, all?
0: I'm assuming it has something to do with the butt.
1: Okay, yeah. good. You're in the right direction. And there's,
0: is there something strapped on a
1: person? Uh-huh. So there you go. That's it's it? Strap on sex. Oh, it's, it's cool. <laughs> I didn't realize I had a c- cutesy name like that. It does have its own name, Pegging, yes. So it is about, usually it refers to people without bio penises, if you will, okay. uh, strapping on a dildo to a, to, to a harness of some sort to their okay. body and then using that to penetrate, usually men... Anally, but I guess you can also use it for you know women having sex with women sure. as long as right you're penetrating somebody with uh, a dildo attached to your body this using is, a harness of some sort. This doesn't sound easy. It seems. What do you mean it doesn't sound good? Well, easy. because
0: it's. I don't know. It just seems like it, it could lead to injuries or something like that, right? <laughs> I mean,
1: oh, so, so can anal sex, period, well, or, right. or sex get, in I general. I guess so.
0: <laughs> but the fact that you're strapping on and using some sort of device, doesn't, it's not the most natural way. How about that? Isn't that as natural?
1: Well, I mean, yes, to some extent. So I think there is obviously a level of skill involved in any kind of sexual interaction. And especially, let's talk about penetration how fast you go, how versus gentle and when and how long and what, Position and all of that. And now, when you transfer from vaginal sex to anal sex, there's a whole other set of skill that you need to have because it's a different kind of hole and it right. often takes a lot longer to prep and open up. And so, you have to be a little more gentle and careful and use lube and all that. Yeah. So, that's true whether you're penetrating with a penis or a toy of some sort. But then, I think there is an additional component of skill to pegging because when you have your cock attached to you, like your biopenis attached to you, you get a lot of sensation from your penis as to what it may be happening in the hole that you're putting this right. penis in, right? Because you're feeling
0: you, the tip somewhere. Yeah, at some point, you're feeling right? You're pressure,
1: you know yeah. how tight it is, you know if, if the other person is clenching, you feel if it's sort of the wrong angle and you're pushing up against somewhere where there's nowhere to go, right. whereas when you're using a toy, you don't get that kind of feedback. So you do need to be a lot more careful or knowledgeable or get a lot better feedback and encourage a lot of feedback from your bottom, from your receptive partner. Yeah. So there are, I think, more and more men as, and actually we're going to talk about this very soon with our guest, as this craziness about being gay or how terrible being gay may be is waning in our society. Yeah. I think more and more men are becoming open to exploring their butts and whether they can get some pleasure from them, which I think is a wonderful development.
0: Well, on that note, let's get our guest on. The science
2: of sex goes deeper.
1: There seems to be a lot of talk about threesomes these days. The media often talks and writes about them. They're one of the most frequently searched porn terms. And one of the most common questions when I do Q&As is, how do I get my partner to have a threesome with me? And also, (laughs) a recent nationally representative study that we talked about in episode one of the podcast gave us the actual numbers of Americans who've had a threesome and who would want a threesome. So we thought we'd bring someone on the show who's done some research on threesomes to talk about this topic. Dr. Ryan Scotes seemed like the perfect candidate. He was recently... written up in the New York Post as the guy who got a PhD in threesomes.
0: That's a pretty good PhD. <laughs> I know. To have. Uh, yeah,
1: that's a, that's a good one. I mean, my title was PhD in casual sex, which I also think is pretty good. That's all but, right. you know. Oh, it's just all right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fine. I kid, I love you. <laughs> so Dr. Ranscode's got his BA and mas- Master's of Research from the University of Bath and his PhD in Sociology from the University of Winchester, studying under Professor Eric Anderson. He is currently a researcher at Birmingham City University in the Faculty of Health, Education, and Life Sciences. And his research focuses on masculinities, sports cultures, sexualities, identity, consensual non-monogamy, and, obviously, threesomes. Specifically, Skoth and his co-authors published a study earlier this year in the Journal of Sexualities where he conducted a qualitative interview-based study with 30 mostly heterosexually-identified undergraduate male students in the U.K. And he found that these men were very open to threesomes and not only of the FMF kind, the kind that involves them with two women. Right. (laughs) Right, because that's not surprising. I got that.
0: FMF is female, male, female. Exactly. Okay.
1: So although these were certainly appealing experiences for these men, they also seem quite open to and interested in the more controversial type of threesome, if you will, the MFM.
0: Male, female,
1: male. Very good, Joe. Thank you. Very good. Yes. So I can't wait to unpack some of these things with Dr. Ryan, so let's bring him into the conversation. Dr. Ryan Scotes, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: So first of all, tell us, how did you end up studying this relatively little-studied, but oh-so-fascinating topic?
2: (laughs) Well, I suppose it all stems from personal experiences. So I had some threesomes myself, and being the kind of guy that I am, I went to look at the academic literature to see how are other people having threesomes, what are their experiences like, and how how are things for them. And I realized that there's actually very little academic work out there about threesomes. I mean, more has come in recent years, but at the time there was very little.
0: So, what was out there? You said you found, well, I mean, were there actual um, like studies or like what did you come across during your research?
2: So, uh, probably the biggest one was a study by a man in the States called Arno Carlin, and it was quite old. It was It still had some good stuff in it, but the data was collected sort of over the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and then it was published in the late 80s. And so it was fine, but, I mean, society has moved on. Society has changed in so many different ways since then. So I thought, things have got to be different now. Mm. Um, There were also a few quantitative studies, a few studies that kind of touched upon threesomes in fantasy, but there was very little looking at threesomes in and of themselves.
1: In actual experiences of the threesomes yeah, yeah, and for your study, so you basically interviewed thirty undergraduate students. who were these students? How did you select them? Were they special in some way in any specific characteristics?
2: a couple of things. they were all from a sports course, so some of them were athletes, some of them were just casual sports players, and they were also all already known to us so we figured that because we were asking about potentially stigmatized sexual activities and behaviors, it would be better if we could speak with people that already had some sort of a bond with us. And hopefully they would be more open about things because oh, of that. Oh, and what I kind think, of
1: bond did you have? That's just... <laughs> well, yeah, well, nothing <laughs> Not quite that like that. Not that kind of bond. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, no, oh, no. But, um,
2: yeah, just, I guess, uh, friendliness. Um, sort of when you're teaching these classes and you're talking about sex and experiences and gender and all of these things and we just put out the call and from I think 70 potentials we had 30 come back and say that they wanted to speak and yeah we asked them about threesomes as well as other stuff and we didn't know what we were going to find.
1: Did they know they were going to be asked about threesomes in particular or was it more broadly advertised like we're going to talk about sex stuff?
2: Yeah, yeah, much more broadly. So yeah, about sex and relationships and that kind of thing.
1: Unlike all the other studies that we've already talked about on this podcast, uh, they were all quantitative studies with large samples, often nationally representative samples. And this one is a different one. It's a qualitative study with a small sample. So for the people who are not necessarily as versed in, in research, can you tell us a little bit about how qualitative research in general differs from quantitative research and what are some of the benefits and drawbacks?
2: Quantitative generally is looking to establish trends and, like you said, to be representative of something. Now, this is great and we do need this kind of research, but by the same token, you can't always be sure what questions you need to ask. And this is kind of where qualitative work comes in. So qualitative allows you to explore, get the participants to kind of tell their own stories. It also allows you to follow up things that you perhaps didn't expect to find. It's a lot more broad, but by the same token, you can't generalize from it. So maybe things will be the same for some people, but maybe they won't. So it kind of tries to fill in some of the negatives of quantitative, but it has its own drawbacks, definitely.
1: So it gives you more context, more depth mm-hmm. of what is going on. Like you find a trend, like, okay, people are having threesomes and, in quantitative research, or how many people are having threesomes in quantitative research, and then you go qualitatively and explore, okay, what does that mean to people, and what kinds yeah. of threesomes, and what are they really doing when they're doing that, right? Yeah, so it gives exactly. You, more.
2: you can find out all of the, the things that, okay, why are you doing it? How did it happen? When did it happen? Would, would you do it again? Why would you want it like that? All of these things... They're really useful to follow up in like a conversation with someone.
1: In this sample among your 30 students, you actually found pretty high rates of past threesome experience. So a third of of your guys had already had a threesome, even though they're pretty early on in their college careers, right? They were
2: Mm -hmm. in their first or second year? Yeah, about halfway through their second year. So that's about a year and a half of university.
1: Right. Already a third had had a threesome, and they also had very high interest in threesomes among those who hadn't yet had one. So basically all of them said that they wanted the threesome with two women. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Uh, But even 80% of them said they had an interest in a threesome with another guy and a girl.
2: Yeah, absolutely. These
1: numbers are pretty high, right? They're much higher than some of the findings from the nationally Representative Study of Americans that just came out, where only 17% of all men and only 11% of the 18 to 24-year-olds had had a threesome, and Mm -hmm. only about a third of all men found them at least somewhat appealing. So what do you think is going on here? Are Americans and Brits so dramatically different, or is there something pretty unique about your interviewees?
2: It could be uh, a cultural difference. It's Also, going back to the idea of qualitative research, we can't generalize from it. So we might have found very high numbers uh, from the people that we spoke to. But like you said, there's going to be particular reasons for that. So one thing to bear in mind is they are university students. And so they're potentially going to have more access to casual sex, maybe in a very sexualized environment. So they've perhaps just got a lot more opportunity for these things. Secondly, knowing the interviewer, so having that bond, it might have meant that these guys, they were more open, they were more honest about things. Mm. Finally, it's also worth noting that these were sports students, so some of them were high-level athletes. And with that, it perhaps brings with it a certain amount of confidence, perhaps uh, a toned body. Um, mm-hmm. Some people are going to find this attractive. So it's perhaps giving them more opportunity to have sexual experiences. So all of these things could be reasons why we find higher numbers than representative quantitative studies. So
1: there, these are the, you know, the typical alpha male yeah. more who both has access to these kinds of experiences more than your average Joe. Uh, so I'm not talking about yeah. you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> And there is some research, uh, men who are more traditionally attractive, just sort of mm-hmm. generally yeah. perceived as more attractive by the majority of people, are more likely to want casual sex and seek out casual sex. And threesomes would often fall under that. Yeah,
0: yeah. so like yeah. all those quantitative studies you were talking mm-hmm. about, probably there were a lot of ugly people in there. You probably couldn't feel like they <laughs>
1: traditionally the, right. less attractive, yes, yes, yes. yeah,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm the
2: doctor, as you can tell here, Ryan. Oh, yeah, no, I, I see you've, you've clearly got a lot of knowledge in this <laughs> yeah. area, yes.
1: So, okay, this is really fascinating. Like, you have these young men coming out as being pretty comfortable with this threesome situation, especially maybe particularly interesting is the fact that they're so comfortable or interested in the MFM, the male, female, male type mm-hmm. threesome and you've situated this work within a broader societal notions concepts of there too cultural homo hysteria and the yeah. one time rule of homosexuality so can mm-hmm. you define what these are and how they affect straight or mostly straight men's expression of sexuality and intimacy with other men and how you see this developing or changing over time
2: I guess they are both theoretical concepts that we can use to kind of understand society. It's a a lens that we can wear to help unpick things and understand why they are how they are. So hysteria, this is talking about the fear of being deceived gay because of how you behave. So it's the idea that if a man engages in behaviours that are traditionally associated with women, or like symbols of femininity, then in the eyes of other men, they're going to be considered gay or less masculine. Mm. And the opposite would be true for women. So women uh, being more masculine would be seen as gay by others as well. But as our Western societies are becoming more accepting of homosexuality, you see this kind of dropping away somewhat. So especially amongst young guys they don't fear being seen as gay they don't see gay as being anything wrong so it broadens the available behaviors to them so they can show emotion they can be physically intimate with other men they can show their vulnerability and
1: Physically intimate sexually or non sexually?
2: It could happen either way. I think being physically intimate sexually with other men is probably less common, but I think these things are happening. Some of the guys that I had spoken to, they had done things with other guys, their friends, and they still identified as straight. It was just something that happened to them. I and think it started with was. the
0: whole metrosexual movement because I just remember, like, growing up, I don't remember a guy having to, buying skin products or making sure their hair was nice. Now all of a sudden, we're in this—we live in a society where guys like to look pretty and guys mm-hmm. like to yeah. be. Put together,
2: God, put together. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's gone past that now. It's no longer just looking that way. Guys are sort of realizing what it's like to have these deep friendships and to show their vulnerability and what they can get out of it. And they're seeing benefit in it.
1: Right. So these things like showing closeness and intimacy with their other male friends without the fear of being perceived as gay.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And related to homo hysteria, we have the one time rule of homosexuality and that's the idea that just one transgression from a supposedly straight man would make them gay in the eyes of others. So in times of high homo hysteria, a guy just needs to be seen with another guy or be a bit too close with Mm. them on the bus or like kiss another guy on the cheek and those guys are marked forevermore Mm. as gay. But Again, as we saw in the research, men don't subscribe to this anymore, or at least the guys that I was speaking to, they don't subscribe to it. And they view culture as so accepting that if anyone is gay, they would be honest about it. They don't see a reason why anyone would lie. Right. I mean perhaps it is a little that overstating it is a little naive, but yeah, this is the impression that we get that being homosexual is that accepted.
1: Right and obviously depends on what subcultural spaces we we are talking about, right? Hmm. There's still in many parts of the west intolerant environments yep. and subcultures and then the more tolerant ones. So obviously that's not all going to happen at the same time everywhere. Okay. It's-
0: and that's why you almost <laughs> wish you had a time machine, right, Dr. Ryan because you could go back 30 years. If you did the same if you picked 30 guys 30 years ago
1: from the what- sports
2: yeah, from the class. Sport, those
0: sports class. Uh, you know, you can imagine the homophobia running rampant through the locker room at that
2: time. Oh, yeah. I, I could imagine getting punched for asking such questions. It's like, what do you mean? I'm, <laughs> I'm not like, uh, well, yeah, I could imagine some of the things that they would say for just insinuating that they might do yeah. something like that.
1: And so, you know, as, uh, as we're talking, as homohysteria is waning, men are freer to engage in both non-sexual acts of intimacy with other men and also maybe in the occasional same-sex sexual act, even if they are straight or mostly straight. Are you arguing that engaging in, in male-female-male threesomes is also part of that greater freedom to explore? I mean, are these experiences somehow perceived as gay?
2: I guess it it depends on who you speak to. I'm sure there will be some people who view these acts as gay, but the guys who I was speaking to, they didn't. They didn't view it as a homosexual act. They did see it as part of bonding, as part of exploration, something to tick off a list, if you like, or something that would be fun with a friend, something they could reminisce about in future years. So, yeah, it it wasn't seen as this big homoerotic thing, at least for these guys, but I could definitely see how other people might interpret it differently. By the same token, these guys were speaking with their friends about their experiences, and they didn't seem to fear that stigma.
1: Were there same-sex sexual contact between the men in these experiences that the guys had had?
2: Generally not. There was some contact, but it wasn't generally sexual, so there might be, like, I don't know, a high-five or somebody <laughs> right. touching somebody else's shoulder. So you call it sort of incidental touching.
0: Like swords but... crossing is the old adage, right? <laughs> that would happen.
2: Yeah, well, none of the men brought it up. Okay, but, no. But they did bring up other occasions when they had maybe done things with guys in a non threesome situation. So it's not to say that none of them were... Yeah up for it but it just hadn't happened to have happened
1: I mean yeah certainly swords can cross in those yeah. kinds of situations I can imagine Depending yeah.
0: if you don't have a lot of room in it, where you are it sure. just happens it d-
1: depends on what you're doing right? <laughs> yeah, if sure. you're doing double yeah. penetration then yes. chances yeah. of that yeah. happening are much higher than if you don't do double penetration sure.
2: Okay. Yeah, yeah. Like I can't help but feel Joe talks a lot from experience. <laughs> no. Oh, if you only knew!
0: I read a lot, Doctor Ryan. I just, I just I'm, I'm a voracious reader.
1: But he's been monogamously partnered for what twenty, 20 years. years. Yeah.
0: So I oh, live vicariously through Doctor Jana. That's, that's sort of uh, how I live my life. All.
1: Everything yeah. he knows, he knows through me. Right, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, I think. Definitely that the potential homoeroticism that people perceive with just even just having another penis in, in the room, right, yeah. very often is undoubtedly one of those things that keeps men away from some of these experiences. Are there any other barriers or fears that you think might have similar effects on men being like, threesome with two girls, hell yeah, but I don't want to go anywhere near you know another guy mm. and a girl threesome?
2: Yeah. So I I think one of the big things that can't be understated is it being a friend. So I think if it's a friend or a bromance that these guys are having their threesome with, it brings a certain level of comfort. So with a stranger, they might not know, well, how is this guy going to treat the woman? Like, are they Mm -hmm. going to be really misogynistic or really uh, rough with them? Um, Is it going to be sort of an unpleasant experience for me seeing that happen? Or... Perhaps they're gonna to want to do something sexual with me and I wasn't really up for that. Mm. Equally, another thing might be that some of these guys might be a bit shy about their bodies. So if they are not particularly buff and they're with a guy who is, then unless they're comfortable with being naked around them and it's someone they are friendly with, that could make them feel a bit inadequate, I think. Right. So, I also think, yeah. too,
0: the fact that you picked athletes and for lack of a better term, th- these guys are used to seeing dicks all the time in a locker room. So maybe the comfort mm-hmm. factor is pretty high because mm-hmm. they're so used to just being surrounded by random penises, the fact that they're in a room with another guy and a woman mm-hmm. is not off-putting to them or even intimidating at any, at any
2: point, right? Yeah, no, that, that could be part of it. But these guys are not just sort of being naked in a locker room with other athletes. They're sort of wandering around naked in the house or yeah. sort of like wearing very little in each other's rooms, like sleeping just in underwear in each other's beds kind mm-hmm. of thing. So it it goes slightly beyond that, but that's definitely part of it.
1: You mentioned one of the things might be how the woman would be treated. And there's sort of a general understanding that a woman having sex with two guys at once is a total slut. And that's something that no self-respecting woman would do. And by mm-hmm. extension, that a guy were to participate in such a scenario, he'd probably have little respect for that woman you certainly wouldn't want that to be your like long-term girlfriend or something it would be some someone that you have less connection or relationship with what do your guys have to say about this
2: a lot of the guys they did say that they wouldn't want to have an mms threesome with their girlfriend but Mm. that's not to say that they weren't respectful women. Some of these women that they were having threesomes with, they were still their friends. And participants did talk about showing respect and gaining consent and making sure that everything went well. I, I think the fact that they wouldn't want to do it with their girlfriends is probably more related to not wanting their relationship to creep into the realms of non-monogamy so even some of the guys said that if an ffm threesome threesome with another woman were to happen they still wouldn't want it to happen with their girlfriend so yeah i think it's potentially less about them not wanting their girlfriends treated like a slut or being seen as a slut and it's more about not being entirely comfortable with what that would mean to their relationship
0: yeah I think a lot has to do with the former because when you brought that up Doc I just immediately thought I don't know if you ever watched a TV show The Sopranos like all these gangsters they were married Mm -hmm. with children but they had gumas you know girlfriends on the side and they would always admit that they freely do crazy stuff with the girlfriend but they would never do something with the mother of their children so it's almost like they put whoever they're in a relationship with to a higher pedestal and deep down like I could never do that with her, but I could do this with this other girl.
2: Yeah, it, it, it could be that. I, I think some of the guys, they also talked about they wouldn't want to bring it up because they wouldn't want their girlfriend to get upset. Yeah. So they, they wouldn't want um, the girlfriend to think that this person wasn't happy in the relationship and they wanted something outside of it. So they thought that these things would be better off experienced with other people hmm. and yeah, kind of not to rock the boat with their partner.
1: Right, not bring in too much complexity yeah. in, the, in the scenario. I wouldn't even know how Which,
0: to begin with that. Like, if you were in a long-term relationship and all of a sudden you came home to your husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend and say,
1: Hey, how, what's this
0: threesome thing? What do you think about that? Like, I just, I don't even know how that even happens in a relationship,
2: right? It's, I mean, it's your just happens like, in a lot
1: of different ways. It depends well, yeah. on the I, I guess
2: first you, you send them a podcast about <laughs> what they thought of that. And That's very passive-aggressive stuff. <laughs>
1: I think your partner is probably listening to this, so she might have some questions for you when you get home.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, these conversations, they happen in all kinds of ways, and... I guess seeing these things, um, whether it be in pornography or whether it be in media pieces or on TV, these can help spark conversations and it can allow partners sometimes to have these conversations without it being a direct Mm. ask of, I think we should have a threesome. They can kind of sound it out. It's like, oh, wow, they're having threesomes. Mm. That's kind of crazy. Have you ever done that? Or Mm. what do you think about that? And then they can start to sound out what their partner feels about it
0: was that part of your study by the way the initiation of the threesome
2: so with this study no with um my phd thesis where i interviewed other people Mm -hmm. um yeah yeah
0: what did you get out of that
2: um i generally found that for guys these things they were generally happening spontaneously so maybe after parties maybe after drinking or going out and all of a sudden, these things would just happen. Oops, I had a
0: threesome. That was that kind <laughs> <Yeah>. of thing.
2: <laughs> it was somebody would make an offhand remark or a comment, and people wouldn't shoot it down. And then, yeah, one thing leads to another. Mm-hmm. Um, for women, it would happen like that. But also, more of the women I spoke to were in relationships when it happened. So there was a more organization. Hmm. So picking the right person. So typical. And, yeah, speaking, okay. <laughs> <laughs> speaking with them and, yeah, there was, it was more pre-planned and organized in wow. comparison.
1: You mentioned bromances, and mm-hmm. can, can we talk a little bit about that? What exactly is a bromance? Like, how is that different from just having a best friend? And to what extent did that play a role in some of these threesome experiences?
2: So I, I think the idea of uh, a bromance, it really captures how some young guys are having friendships these days. So men have had best friends for the longest time, but these friendships haven't necessarily included this intimacy, this vulnerability that we are seeing now. But this is kind of encapsulated in the term bromance so it almost might be a better question to ask what's the difference between a bromance and a relationship and the answer is
1: the They're sex? not having
2: sex together. Right. And that's kind of it. You could even say that bromance is more intimate. So some of these guys are more open with their bromances than they are with their partners.
0: But that term gets thrown around a lot. George Clooney and Matt Damon are having a bromance. <laughs> They're not necessarily having a threesome, but the, the phrase is used very <laughs> yeah. often with guys nowadays.
2: Yeah, and I think to different people it can mean different things. Yeah. So certainly if you use a term like bro, that has very sort of alpha male connotations yeah. and sort of very misogynistic connotations. Whereas bromance, yeah, it could still have that. But yeah, we have tried to start using it in this new way to kind of encapsulate that best friend aspect, but also acknowledge that it's not just best friends, it's best friends, including the emotion and potentially physical touch and all of these things that have been off limits to men in the past.
1: Do you think that this kind of non-sexual intimacy between straight men who are very close and, and friendly with each other, that that was more available in a time before we were super aware of homosexuality as a thing? And that uh, yeah. becoming uh, kind of more aware that some people are actually gay and and then having a very negative response to that very homophobic mm-hmm. kind of response to the fact that some people might be gay then pushed men away from each other even though they weren't gay they were just being physically close and intimate with their friends
2: absolutely if you look at photos of men in the early 1900s then you will see them sat on each other's laps and in big dog piles and yeah like dressed as women and These are in the days when to pose for a photo, it would take hours to sit there. So these are not quick snaps. They're in these positions with other guys for hours. And then you track it and it gets to about the 1920s. And once people are starting to become aware of homosexuality, then everything gets a lot more stoic. So the pictures, men, arms by their sides, arms folded, Mm -hmm. blank faces, no smiling. These become a lot more common. So, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right in that.
1: So, we're regaining something that we've lost, or men in particular, because women have always had the ability to have these very close non sexual mm-hmm. friendships with other women, but men kind of lost that for, I don't know, 80 years yeah. or so.
2: Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think it's coming back, and it will come back slower in different parts of societies and within different cultures and countries, but from what We are seeing, especially with millennials in the U.K. and the U.S., it seems to be pretty prevalent.
0: It's funny, too, we mentioned homosteria. I think there's some slight homosteria still bubbling under when it comes to hugging. Because if if two guys hug, what do they call it? A bro hug. They don't call it a hug. It's a br- they, they feel the need to throw the word bro on it to almost make it seem more macho than regular hug.
2: Oh, you just want a cuddle, don't you? <laughs> so-
0: no, but right, you know, you, you hear that phrase all the time when you see two guys, let's hug it out. It's a bro hug. They never just say, let's hug. You know, or, the,
2: hey, it was nice hugging you or something. It was a bro hug.
1: It's a slow process, so I, I think. I think
2: this could be a difference between the UK and the US. So mm-hmm. I think the UK is a lot further along the sort of line, uh, along okay. the spectrum mm-hmm. in this regard. So I think... Uh, there will be more uh, controlling of how you want to be perceived uh, mm-hmm. in regards to sort of masculinity and sexuality in the States. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the UK, I don't see this thing happening. Like men will even use the word sort of, oh, do you want to come cuddle in bed or do you want to come spoon in bed? And these are kind of certainly more intimate terms than hug.
1: Straight men saying that to their straight male friends.
2: Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Where are you hanging out? You should out? see Joe's face at this moment. <laughs> He's like, what?
1: What?
0: That happens? Is what this are you talking com- about? Really, is this common that guys, straight guys are cuddling and they're
2: asking to cuddle? It's be- certainly becoming more common wow. so, Yeah, among- amongst younger guys. And again, a lot of this research is coming from qualitative sources, and so it's not yeah. necessarily generalizable to other areas. But there is a lot of it, and it is growing, so yeah, it's, it's certainly becoming more common.
0: How are you handling the fame with this study? Because <laughs> you've gone global, I mean, every newspaper mainstream has picked up this study that you've put together. How are you handling everything?
2: It's been strange as hell, but uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, no, it's been great. It's, it's nice that I can get my research out there, and it raises my profile, and it allows hopefully people to start having conversations about threesomes. Luckily enough, in one newspaper, I was able to give sex tips.
1: Woo-hoo. Are you yeah. getting all these threesome offers left and right?
2: Uh, no. <laughs> I've had some odd messages on Facebook, but no threesome offers
0: <laughs> yet. <laughs> well, this has been fun. Dr. Ryan Skos, thank you very much for joining us on the Science of Sex podcast.
2: Awesome. Thank you.
1: Cool. Thank you, Ryan. Take it, Ryan. Okay. Bye.
2: Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Science of Sex
1: Afterglow.
0: So remember when I mentioned that Dr. Jana finally agrees with the Trump administration? And you jumped on my throat and said it's just a one thing, just a one thing. So here's the deal. Last month, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos scrapped one of President Obama's regulatory actions, a set of campus disciplinary procedures for students accused of sexual assault. Now the Obama era guidelines weaken traditional protections for the accused, like being presumed innocent until proven guilty having the right to cross-examine an accuser, and perhaps most controversially, lowering the standard of proof in deciding whether a student is responsible for sexual assault from beyond reasonable doubt to preponderance of evidence. Now, DeVos has rescinded Obama's policies and announced that they will develop detailed replacement regulations for campus sexual assault cases, publish them, then invite public comments, and then finally adopt new rules by next fall. So I was joking about you agreeing with this. So why do you agree with, with Betsy DeVos here?
1: I never thought I would agree with anything that the Trump administration yeah. did, but it happened. It okay. happened sooner than I thought.
0: All right. So let's get to it. Why, why yeah, do you agree with her?
1: Well, first, I guess I would have to say why I disagreed with the Obama era okay. policies. And not having had a podcast then, I didn't get a chance to air some of those. These, grievances. Uh, grievances, <laughs> yes. But I actually did not agree with that whole new movement toward this way of dealing with sexual assault cases. And I know that they came from a good intention place, right? right? Because many colleges weren't dealing with sexual assaults very well and weren't taking those kinds of accusations very seriously. But what I think happened with Obama-era policies is taking things to the other extreme, Extreme, where instead of giving, you know, serious consideration to the accusation, but also giving the accuser a chance to defend and provide evidence to the contrary, things got taken all the way to the other extreme where for something as serious of an accusation as uh, sexual assault, which is in the criminal justice system, would be required to be held at this beyond reasonable doubt level of proof, which means present evidence at like 90 plus percent that this really happened. Okay. In order to be accused, and you you're lowering this to the level of civil cases, which is preponderance of evidence, which is basically it, as long as there's 51% chance that this happened, or you have evidence. It happened. Then it happened. And then you end up disciplining these men, usually because almost all cases, these were men being accused by women. And very often they were being uh, kicked out of the schools and their lives and careers in some ways uh, ruined. And it's been interesting that since then, there have been many cases where these students, these male students would then sue the university. And in many of these court cases, they won. In fact, the majority of the court cases, they won. Something like 70 of them won versus 50 who lost. Who knew? Yeah, so I think it is because it is problematic to not give people a chance to cross-examine. Like it's, some of these cases were cases where the guys didn't even get a chance to know what exactly happened or right. who exactly okay, accused I need, them.
0: I need to know about that. So let's go back to Ob- uh, during the Obama administration. So if a woman accused a fellow student, a male student, of say maybe groping her and maybe harassing her, if she complained to the school, then what would happen?
1: Very often somebody and this somebody differed from a school to a school. The colleges had a lot of freedom in in how and who dealt with these cases. But whoever looked at that case may have immediately taken some disciplinary action against the accused without ever even telling them who was accusing them of what or giving them a chance to defend themselves. So they would just take the complaint at face value and take a whole set of disciplinary actions against the accused.
0: So the thing is, so, and like said. As long said, as they
1: were kind of convinced at this preponderance of evidence n- right, enough that information. this did kind of happen.
0: All right, you know how I love playing the devil's advocate. What about when this story broke, a lot of people jumped on DeVos for saying she was protecting rapists by rescinding all these Uh, Regulations.
1: Sure. So I don't necessarily agree with how colleges were dealing with these things before. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of evidence to suggest that very often they were sweeping things under the rug. They didn't want the bad PR. And so they weren't really taking seriously the accusations that the women would come forth with. So that's not good either. And if if all she did was just rescind all these policies and then not really replace them with anything new, I don't think that's good either. But at least what they're saying is that they're now going to be working on creating more fair and reasonable set of policies. And I do agree with that because I think that the Obama era policies were just as unreasonable as the old policies right. only in the other direction. And I'm just not an extremist in that way. I think we need to have a more balanced approach do this.
0: So what you're saying the Obama regulations were a knee-jerk reaction to years of nothing being done at the schools.
1: Exactly. That's a good way of putting it. And I don't think that knee-jerk reaction was the right way to go. And actually, it's been interesting that there has been criticism from the left, but there also have been people on the left who have been supportive of DeVos's decision yeah. and who are very critical of the Obama-era policies. So you have a lot of feminist scholars saying that, yeah, this is probably not the way to, the, the obama era policies were not the way to go and that we should have more balanced approach. And I'm certainly a super leftist kind of feminist thinker uh, in in my own life. And I, I agree with this, that there needs to be more balance. Jerry Brown. So California being kind of on the forefront of these progressive liberal causes, they passed both houses of their state legislature passed. This law that would apply not just to individual colleges like the colleges were passing themselves, but Mm -hmm. that would apply to all public universities in California. And Jerry Brown, the governor, decided not to sign that into law. He vetoed that law because he was worried that we're taking Kind of things to the other extreme and this kind of ties back to what we were talking about in the beginning of how do we deal with these things like yes we have not been dealing with sexual assault and sexual harassment whether in college or anywhere else in our society very well up to this point we've been silencing the victims and not doing anything uh, to the perpetrators but the response cannot be to take things all the way to the other extreme where we just fire everybody and put everybody in jail and we expel every student. And, you know, there, there has to be some balanced approach in this.
0: It's funny, going back to the beginning of the show, that umbrella and gray area is so vast, and mm-hmm. I do not envy Betsy DeVos when she finally makes a decision oh God, on yeah. this, because I, can you find a middle ground in this? Because it's it seems like we're- It's
1: not easy. Yeah. It's not easy. And the alcohol situation in particular makes things very difficult, because a lot of these cases, especially when it comes to college sexual assault, are cases that involve a lot of alcohol- And drugs, sure. And drugs, yeah, where people are intoxicated, and often both people are intoxicated. It just- ends up being that when the woman wakes up the next day and she says, I've been taken advantage of, even though the guy was just as drunk, if not more drunk than she was, he's the one who's the perpetrator and she's the one who's the victim. So I do want to bring in something that is psychological distinction that a lot of people don't take into consideration that contributes to this gray area. And that's the difference between non-consensual sex, sex where you explicitly either said or indicated a no okay and then what we call unwanted but consensual sex sex that you didn't necessarily want either in that moment or the next day you wake up and you're like i didn't want that but you did not clearly communicate a no and that's different and so what is happening i think what very often is happening these days is these instances of unwanted consensual sex are being kind of reinterpreted as non-consensual sex. But the difference is that when you have unwanted consensual sex, if the indication that you don't want this wasn't very clear, if you didn't say no, if you didn't stop the person, if you didn't push the person away, how is that person supposed to know that you didn't want this? They're not mind readers, especially if they're also a little drunk or very drunk or high. Mm -hmm. Their ability to read these more subtle symptoms, because people will often show some more subtle signals of Like, I'm not sure I want this. I'm not like fully enthusiastic about this. And that's where all the yes means, only yes means yes kind of came into existence. That only like super highly enthusiastic sex is consensual sex and everything else falls under rape and sexual assault. But I think that's a completely unrealistic and extreme standard as well. So you can't equate this gray area of I'm not sure, but I'm not saying anything to make obvious to the other person that I'm not sure about this versus I'm saying no. And this other person is continuing to push me to do this.
0: Well, it's not the last we've heard about this. I mean, this is going to be going on for weeks on end. And hopefully by next year, the new regulations will be in place. And next week, do you think I could find another thing you agree with the Trump administration? Or do you think that's pretty much it? I've, I've reached I, the I only mean, thing. You can
1: try. Okay. You can yeah, dig deep and hard and uh, <laughs> I doubt that will happen. But hey, I would be very happy if there are more things that I can agree on with the current administration because we are sort of stuck with a lot of those policies for at least a while.
0: All right. I'll go on the Google. I'll try my best. (laughs) I'll find something and I'll see you back here next week, Dr. Jana.
1: Yes. So don't forget to rate or review the podcast if you like it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I guess even if you don't like it. Yeah, I I prefer that you like (laughs) it, right? Yeah, Yeah. a bit better. And then if you're in New York City, come to the Sex Science Social on Buy Curiosity on November 16th in Brooklyn. You can find information information on Eventbrite and on Facebook, and also we'll put information on my website on drjana.com. And actually, we're going to be live streaming that on Facebook. You have to follow Jana, Jana Vrangalova on Facebook. Right. I like how you just
0: say that name, like everyone's going to know how to spell that. But I'm sure if you start to type in Jana, you'll you'll probably get
1: it. Exactly. You type Dr. Jana and sex and I come up.
0: All right, Dr. Jana, what do we got next week on the Science of Sex podcast?
1: We have asexuality. Okay. Yeah, we're going to talk to a New Zealand researcher who's uh, been studying asexuality.
0: Interesting. All right, mm-hmm. cool. Well, I'll see you back here next week, Dr. Jana. Bye. Bye. The Science of Sex is produced in New York City. To connect with the hosts, go to drjana.com and joepardavila.com. Like us on Facebook at The Science of Sex Podcast or follow us on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod. For more sex science, read Dr. Jana's column at forbes.com. This has been The Science of Sex.